So this morning I thought we'd have a look at a small period in the life of Paul, around the time that he wrote Colossians, and then we'll just take a few verses from the letter to the Colossians to encourage us. It's a small letter that flies by quickly in a few days, but it packs a lot of punch, very practical, and yet focused entirely on Christ. So at the time that Paul wrote Colossians, he was living in Ephesus, and he wasn't living there because it was a nice place to live, a pleasant place to live, because houses were cheap. He was living there because he was about God's business. It was the capital of Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey, and he was totally surrounded by every type of false teaching, confusion, superstition, false gods, and sheeple. The whole world seemed lost in idol worship. Picture the scene for a moment. The streets are bustling. People are about their daily business. And if you're a stranger there, you notice little silver trinkets and bronze images of various gods, deities in every silversmith shop, on every market stall, on each corner, hanging over every doorway, all different shapes and sizes of gods. For every occasion, from drinking tea to cooking to meditating, to simply a little pocket idol to carry around, or something to fix on your cart. The all-seeing eye would have been painted everywhere in bright colours, and even leather goods of every description would have had images burned into them, and embroidery with God's names uh, and pictures. There were temples in their honour, people devoting themselves to them, wearing certain clothes, with their God's names on their foreheads, living their lives in dedication to these false gods, chanting, offering food to them. If any of you have ever been to Southeast Asia, you know you can't walk down a street without seeing food rotting away next to a shrine of an idol. There are cans of cola and crisps, meat, bread, packets of noodles and cakes all piled up next to this little plastic shrine. And some of them have candles flickering nearby, while others are plugged into the electricity with their little lights on like an actor's dressing room. There are wasps and flies and geckos and cockroaches all over the place. And just a few metres on, just in the next driveway or the next garden or the next steps of another business, another identical faded plastic shrine in the sunlight with sort of different food on it. Everywhere from the furthest fields to the alleyways in the most modern cities, you can see evidence of spirit worship in that entire region. People are troubled in life and they reach out to those things they can touch. They would rather have their faith in idols than in what they consider to be a holy, remote God, which they can't understand. They reach out to take hold of those which are not the living God to help them in life. There's an idol or a patron saint or a God for every conceivable occasion or problem. There are saints for every day of the year, even now. There's a saint for each type of work you do. And as I say, these idols rot away in the glaring sunlight. Across the world, they have to be replaced repainted, retouched. The more elaborate these shrines are, the more work is required to keep them going. 
and the huge ornate famous shrines that attack devotees and visitors need to be protected from the worshippers' touch, lest the worshippers rub them away and their body parts drop off. So here is Paul in such a place, where to the man or woman idol worship was normal, whereas he was the possessor of the truth about the living God, a man full of faith, called by Jesus himself about God's business. So let's meet him in the pages of Acts 19, verse 23. And at that time, a great disturbance took place concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought a great deal of business to the craftsmen, gathered these together, along with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that our prosperity comes from this business. And I, I actually looked up a little bit about what that would have meant. And the first hit on Google was that very recently, in 2007, a bronze statue of Artemis, the mother of nature, was sold at Sotheby's for £25 million. So even today, apparently, uh, idol worship is big business. And you see in here that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a large crowd, not only in Ephesus, but in practically all of the province of Asia, by saying that gods made by hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that this business of ours will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as nothing, and she whom all the province of Asia and the world worship will suffer the loss of her greatness. It's typical, isn't it? They were worried about their livelihoods. But because that alone would not be enough to justify the punishment they had in mind for Paul, they dreamed up a situation where the whole city was potentially going to suffer the loss of its revenue. And it was all about money, never mind truth. None of them really believed in what they were doing. We see that in so many religions that depend on money and idol worship. There's an elite that know what they're doing is for profit, and there are the masses, the goyim, which are just followers and believe those in authority. So when they heard this, they became enraged and began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city was filled with uproar, and the crowd rushed to the theatre together, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians who were travelling with Paul. I mean, you just can imagine it, can't you? It's an incredibly dangerous situation. And we imagine ourselves in that situation, and then we... And remember that Paul was there, and we asked, what was his reaction? Just seeing his friends dragged, dragged away. The whole city in uproar. Groups of people running around, baying for blood, and rumour and gossip whipping people up. In that moment of danger, his reaction was to boldly wish to enter the public assembly to make a defence in front of them all to stand up and be counted as the representative of the ideas that the people were all in uproar over. It's an example to us not to be shy. Instead, to be confident and ready to stand up and ready to be counted when it matters most, when we have most to lose. But when Paul wanted to enter the public assembly, the disciples wouldn't let him. 
Even some of the provincial authorities, who were his friends, sent a message to him, urging him not to venture into the theatre. So then some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they were even there. Some of the crowd concluded it was about Alexander, because the Jews had pushed him to the front. And Alexander, gesturing with his hand, wanting also to make a defence before them, they recognised he was a Jew, and they all shouted in unison, Great, is Artemis of the Ephesians. And we're told for about two hours. I don't remember in my lifetime two hours of shouting about anything. Um, you know, not even the, some kind of World Cup. You know, it goes on for minutes, I suspect, but not hours. Because this was no quick display of emotion. This was a serious riot. Beliefs are some of the most difficult and irrational drivers, and these people were consumed with emotion and with belief, even though some of them didn't really know what they were doing there. You just can't reason with people when it comes to beliefs. And you'll remember how the secretary of that city brilliantly diffused the situation. Instead of allowing Paul to argue with them all, the secretary simply said, who doesn't know that what you're all chanting is true? So if you have anything controversial that needs a decision from the courts, they're open. Brilliantly diffused by smooth words. But none of those people were educated. None of them had to think about the merits of the situation. It was a wasted opportunity to preach the truth and give a defence. And I expect Paul was disappointed. In today's progressive society, the world is full of people like that, pouring oil on potential situations. There's no such thing as truth, so no one needs to argue. Your truth is not my truth. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're not preaching something discriminatory. These words are brilliant, they diffuse tension, but there is a, a lack of Anything sharp there, isn't there? A lack of the, the opportunity is not there for us. And we feel the same disappointment that Paul feels, that no one's really interested. The sin these days is to have a belief that goes against a minority. It's to hold an opinion that others would see as oppressive. For instance, for instance it would be fine today for any of us to say we believed in Artemis, the mother of nature, and people might even interested, be interested in why. But if we said we believed that idol worship was dangerous and unacceptable and that they should be destroyed because they took people away from the living God, we'd be called bigots, wouldn't we? And we remember when ISIS went around destroying all the idols, how the world was in uproar about it. So Paul spent three years fearlessly and openly dismissing people's beliefs and preaching the kingdom and justification through Christ as the only way to be saved. That's quite something. Acts 19, verse 8, we read, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke out fearlessly for three months, addressing and convincing them about the kingdom of God. But when some were stubborn and refused to believe, reviling the way before the congregation, he left them and took the disciples with him, addressing them every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years, so that all who lived in the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now Paul never saw the faces of those brothers and sisters at Colossae. 
But instead, because of the miracles performed, because of his fearlessness, and through his preaching in direct opposition of the prevailing view of the times, he caused enough of a stir that people came to him from all the nearby towns of Laodicea and Hierapolis and Colossae. And the churches were founded in his absence. If we've ever had a fleeting thought of feeling ashamed or looking stupid in front of others, not wanting to admit our faith, feeling like we could be judged for the faith that we hold, if we've ever ever had a twinge of fear of getting into trouble for talking about Jesus or openly preaching the things which God stands for, let's just remember for a moment, Paul, fearless, in open opposition to the beliefs of every single person in a violent society. Will we ever find ourselves in Trafalgar Square with London's population chanting against us? There's so little likelihood of that. I mean, we're much more likely to be laughed at and dismissed or ignored as quaint fundamentalists and weirdos for our ideas to be dismissed as fringe. And we may feel upset that we are being rejected, but it's not us that would be rejected, is it? These days, in the last days, no one has enough interest in truth to even listen. They probably don't even believe in the concept of truth. But the words we speak, if we're brave enough, are living and active as they are the words of God. And they may just cause enough of a stir in someone's mind to save them. So Paul was living in dark and different times. But we know, don't we, that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. So Colossians is absolutely relevant to us because it's written for us. As we read in chapter 2, verse 1, it's written for all who I have not met personally. Paul wrote the book as a response to a concern that although the early Christians there were faithful, they were having to contend with false beliefs, with those of the world surrounding them, the philosophy of what we read about in the readings earlier. Paul was therefore the perfect man to write to them, and he's the perfect man to encourage us too. So Colossians is a book about Jesus, the answer to false doctrine, the answer to everything, about Jesus' preeminence, his sufficiency, his permanency, that he is everything we need. Let's pick out just a few verses from Colossians, and I'll try to keep my remarks to a minimum. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, Grace and peace to you from God our Father. The old translations use the word saints, don't they? Very confusing for so many people. But nowadays we know this just means holy people. That's you and I set apart for a purpose. The worship of saints has for many centuries cast a shadow of idolatry over Christianity. Yesterday was, was Saint Matthias Day. And today it's St. Isidore the Farmer. And on April the 4th it was St. Isidore of Seville, the patron saint of the internet. It boggles the mind, doesn't it? It's fascinating. 
Christianity as a whole seems to just be constantly returned back to paganism. In Galatians 4, we read, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods at all. But now you've come to know God, or be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless basic forces? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You're observing religious days and months and seasons and years. I fear that my work for you may have been in vain. It would be all too easy to take our new position for granted and to say somewhere deep inside ourselves, I'm a Christian, I know the truth. But we know that this is only a starting point, that it's the gift, that it is a gift and a privilege that we cannot and dare not just bury. In verse 9 of chapter 1, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have a great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. And now, perhaps one of the most misunderstood passages of all scripture. If only Paul knew how his words would be twisted in later years by those wolves in sheep's clothing. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And as we read those words, we have absolutely no problem with any of them. And yet to others, this is proof of Christ's divinity and membership of the Trinity. Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, is indeed the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, of the new creation. He has indeed created all things, and all things were created for him, because without Christ's sacrifice, we would still all be destined to die forever without the chance of resurrection. As it's put in Romans, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Or in Corinthians, For us there is one God, the Father, out of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. He is indeed before all things, and in him all things hold together. We read in Ephesians, In him the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together, into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 
and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. As we read in the first of Corinthians 15, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then when Christ comes, those who belong to him. Paul wrote to the Colossians to put them on their guard, that any other beliefs, any other name, should not be listened to, that they should remain firm in the beliefs that they had heard from the scriptures. Be strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. A straight request from Paul. Don't allow yourself to spend time thinking about human traditions and philosophy, but instead be rooted in Christ, in his word, in the Bible. He is the head of all thought. He is the representation of God's character and he has brought you in himself boldly into the presence of God. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. We are free, brothers and sisters, free from all the rules, all the cunning fables, the philosophy, the regulations, the tradition, the judgments of others. We're free from all the authority that's not in keeping with Christ's teaching. We're free to live a life of love according to our own Bible-defined conscience. It's a huge blessing. We are chosen. We're loved of God, reconciled to him, justified in Jesus' blood, set free from human regulation, from everything which is not permanent, Free to live a life of love. As Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. So let's look around with compassion then at others who are still bound by all of these things. We have a duty to educate. Do not taste, do not touch religious festivals, new moon celebrations, Sabbath days. All these things are shadows, but are not eternal. They have an appearance of wisdom, as we're told in the scriptures, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and harsh treatment of the body. But as we've been raised with Christ, we should set our hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, not on earthly things. We should have no worries and concerns. That should be an aim in our lives. No selfish pride, no intrigue, no grasping with the hand for what we think we want or need, and no ambitious plans for the future. But instead, a prayerful approach to life, as people that have passed from death to life. We can't take any of it with us. Everything we work for should be inside us when we are judged. We can take that with us into the kingdom, 
while everything else will remain. So how we react to this is a highly personal thing, and we've been given the freedom not to be judged by each other in this reaction. Somehow I've always personally felt that the things that I own that will remain when I am called away are kind of the embodiment of a missed opportunity. And one of my aims would kind of be to, to not leave too much behind, not too much evidence, not too much that could have been used and could have been used up. What we are being asked to do here is to stop focusing on anything that might keep us away from Christ. It could even be ourselves, it could be an idol. We shouldn't think about ourselves, whether we're fit or witty or great speakers or rich, whatever it is that, whatever descriptive word we would like to apply to us. Because we're putting on a new self. We are being transformed, renewed in knowledge, in the image of our Creator. We are changing each day into our Creator until his fullness dwells in us too, as we dwell in Christ. God gives us trials and difficulties, and we pray for help and support to learn from them, but we all pray daily, I'm sure, to be helped to love him more, to be more like him, to be a more wholehearted servant, and a more fitting example. And we know that God may give us more trials in order to accomplish what we're asking. In Colossians we read, God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It doesn't matter what we're found doing each day, as privately we can be constant in prayer and connected to him in our minds. Whatever we do, we work at it with all of our heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. And since we know that we will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ we are serving. So it's clear what our focus should be, to pray for each other, to pray for the message to reach others who so badly need it, and to be found working and watching for Jesus when he comes, our lamps burning brightly in a dark generation of idolatry and false philosophy. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. Compared to outsiders, where we have to concern ourselves with being guarded, I suppose, cautious, and we have pushed back, we have pushed back all the time, don't we? Whenever we say anything, nobody just wants to admit it's true. They, they fight us on every point. It's a privilege for us to know each other. We can all talk peacefully with each other about the truth in the scriptures. We're all at one in heart and purpose. We all submit under the words of Christ. We're not thinking our own thoughts. 
And sometimes when we do, we repent. We all hear his voice and we all listen. So many people are like those people of Paul's day, completely lost. They have ideas which don't come from the Bible at all and God never told them. They think like this, millions of people believe what I believe, so how can I be wrong? Or, I haven't read the Bible, but those who have tell me that that's what's in it. And they should know they went to university or theological college. So many people, Christ just occupies the same role as just another guru. He's just a nice guy, a preacher like many others. He's not somebody whose words they have to read and and interpret for themselves. He just was somebody who said lovely things. The entire Old Testament pointed to him in every way imaginable. But most Christians don't need to read that. It's therefore such a different feeling for me to stand here after personally having a week of preaching to my friends without any success. We don't need idols. We don't need images or fortune tellers or gurus, all things my friends have talked about this week. We don't search for advice from anywhere else. We search for the living God in the scriptures and he's been brought near to us by Christ and we're nearer to him each day. We have a personal relationship with him because of what Christ has done for us. Is there any second that goes by where we aren't trying to emulate God's qualities by following Jesus? We have that second-by-second relationship with Jesus. It's strenuous, isn't it? It's a race. We take up our cross and we deny ourselves. We're not trying to find the easy way out. And we will not enter the kingdom except through tribulation. Because we must not only reject what is wrong, we must also accept what is right. We can't just hear the word, but we must do the word as well. We can't rest thinking that what we've done already is enough, but we must keep pressing onwards, running, being transformed and helping others to be transformed. But be comforted, because we are chosen before the foundation of the world. While we were yet sinners, God's purpose involves you and me. Nothing that we see around us now has any permanence. Everything that separates and distinguishes each one of us, money or reputation or education, is being nullified in Christ. Because we aren't just merely changing as individuals, we're being built into a new community, built in Christ, that will be together in love. People use descriptive words to distinguish themselves from others. They're called dualisms, aren't they? I'm a barbarian, or I'm a Greek. I'm educated, I went to Oxford. I'm a master, not a slave. I'm rich, I'm freeborn. These are all marks of separation. But the mark of our new community is that Christ is in all. And Christ is all. Our new self is no self at all, it is Christ. No longer comparing ourselves with each other, but just bearing with each other. So let us be bold in our witness, in our preaching, in our way of life. Let us remember Paul, that fearless man, always ready to be counted, and set our minds on invisible and everlasting things.
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. And when I read that, I was struck by the phrase called to peace because Paul worked that not too long before his violent death and he was a man constantly being persecuted and imprisoned. It seems so odd, doesn't it? We are called to peace. Surely Christians were called to anything but peace. It would surely have been more peaceful for him to just go along with idolatry and fit in. In an extremely violent and volatile age, Paul showed what that peace actually meant. The patient expectation of a crown. The peace that you get by knowing that you're in harmony with the living God, no matter what the circumstances you find yourself in. In every town, we're told, in every city he went to, the Spirit warned him of the persecutions he was going to experience. Most of them are not even recorded. Yet he said we are called to peace. Paul was by no means an isolated example. Many of the Christians that refused to bow to idols in those days were beheaded after being tortured. Many of them in groups. And today in the UK we suffer a totally different type of trial. That of peace and prosperity and freedom of religion. Nobody cares what we believe. We've got oodles of spare time. Each of us has personal, individual self-determination. We have cash and we can do whatever we like with it. We have so many choices every day. It's hard to know exactly how to live the perfect day. We spoil ourselves, as I know I do. So these are our... This is our trial. It's not so easy. Even though, on the surface of it, it's much easier than Paul's day. We're asked in the scriptures, will he find faith on the earth? I know we don't have to contend with violent extremists threatening our lives. We're not forced to bow to idols or die. But in a very real sense, this is the only time in history of Christianity where it hasn't been the case. Does it look increasingly likely that there will be social unrest and a time of trouble worse than any time since nations began? If it does to you as it does to me, let us focus our minds then on Paul's answer to external pressures and external philosophy in an age of violence. Because we may have to learn the lessons from Colossians. And at least at the moment, in principle, let us be aware of this silent killer of prosperity and indifference and take the opportunity to identify all the idols in our lives, anything that promotes itself above Christ, and just cast them all down. <clears throat>